Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm Steve Letarte, STP auto expert and former crew chief. I know what it takes to keep engines performing at their best. STP's latest breakthrough additive, STP Ultra 5-in-1 plus Fuel System Cleaner plus Fuel Stabilizer delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline and helps keep fuel fresh during storage. For over 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products to help engines run better, longer. One bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. Greetings. Welcome to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Our guest is Hendrick Motorsports General Manager Doug Ducard. You probably have seen Doug's name before. You might have seen his face, but you definitely have seen his handiwork. As one of the key executives managing the competition department at Hendrick, Doug wields enormous sway on the direction and fortunes of a NASCAR powerhouse. Hendrick Motorsports has been the gold standard among NASCAR teams virtually since its 1984 inception. And though he mostly has been behind the scenes for more than a decade, Doug has been among the key players at Hendrick. And I think you'll appreciate some of the stories he shares about the challenges faced by one of NASCAR's greatest organizations. It might look easy from the outside, but it rarely is on the inside. A brief note that we taped this before Sonoma and Daytona, though I don't think that any of the conversation is dated. As always, we appreciate you listening. Please leave a rating or review on iTunes. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or have your friends subscribe. It really helps us out. We have episodes every Wednesday, sometimes more than that, depending on if opportunities arise for more guests. If you are subscribed on iTunes or elsewhere, you won't miss an episode. So now without further ado, here's our conversation with Doug Ducart. Doug, thanks for being here. Uh, I, I was going to maybe get started by introducing you as somebody else and let you do one of your famous impersonations, but maybe we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, you are the general manager of Hendrick Motorsports. Um, we're in a conference room here above the uh, 4888 shop. What time does your day generally begin here? How long have you been on the campus? Uh, usually... 7.30 or so, I get on campus. Okay. And leaving at 7 o'clock at night? No, not <laughs> not that late. Hopefully not that late. Okay. It's a rough day if it's been that long. Tell me a little about, about the job. Um, we know what the title is. We know that means you're in charge of, of day-to-day competition. But one of my favorite Doug Ducart quotes, which I incorrectly attributed to Ken uh, Howes, another Hendrick executive once, is that you manage an adult daycare center. Um, <laughs> yes. what, what, what is that like, um, managing all, what do you have, 500-something people here? Well, there's close to 600. Wow. Um, and so the best way, I, I try to describe to people that are maybe not racing fans, but if just they're sports fans, is that you know if you pick your favorite sports team and say that, they have a general manager of a sports team. Typically that general manager is responsible for everything that happens on the field or court. Mm-hmm. And so my scope is basically everything that happens on track. So anyone that has anything to do with manufacturing, developing, making, pitting a race car is my group. And so of the 600, about 440 are, are in my group. That includes all the engine shop, chassis shop, et cetera, pit members. So everyone from the truck drivers to the composite shop, et cetera, anyone that touches anything to do with the race cars in my group. And I know that Tuesdays are debriefs from the weekend, but beyond that, are there any typical days here for you, or is it just? <laughs> well, there's some standing meetings that you have that ba- you know basically you break the week up into. You, we can start at maybe you start with Thursday. You fly out typically to 
wherever you're going to compete. Mm-hmm. And then Sunday night you fly home mm-hmm. from the race weekend. And so I think fans probably understand what happens racetrack-wise. And then when you, you know, Monday morning you come in, Monday through Wednesday, you're trying to just basically manage what had happened and what's going to happen in the future. And so, and then, and then it's a little bit of everything in between. So yeah, obviously you're managing the racetrack portion of it. There's personnel side of everything always. And, you know, the, and I think in any business and really in my job, a lot of what I do is managing what's happening between people, communication, coordination, facilitation, that type of thing. Right. Right. You've been here, you arrived in 2005, right? Mm-hmm. That pre- That's right. Yeah. You arrived at, I would say a, a fairly tough time uh, and not just because obviously the circumstances in Martinsville the the previous October with the plane crash that killed 10 people and and Hendrick lost its general manager and president and engine builder and heir apparent to the company uh it was also going through at that time an, an overhaul where they were building I believe this building and they were they were really overgoing like an, a complete restructuring in, in some ways of, of the organization. All of that was happening while all the things were going on um, related to, to the plane crash as well. What was it like getting here then, and, and what have you seen change, I guess, over those 11 years? Yeah, that's, um, so my previous job, I was the director of General Motors Racing. So in 2003... I was promoted into that job at General Motors. And so that that role was to manage all of the racing programs, all the North American racing programs at General Motors. So that was at the time NASCAR, IndyCar, Corvette Racing at Le Mans, Cadillac SCCA, drag NHRA, front and rear-wheel drive drag racing. We had a drifting program. I mean, there's a little bit of everything. And, um, and I really enjoyed that job at General Motors and and really it was the job I had aspired to. And um, I, as you said, you know, Martinsville occurred and changed everyone's world. And so, you know, Rick approached me about coming here to help. And I really didn't have a predispo- predisposition on what I could or should be doing here. I just knew that he needed help. And he approached me on that. And so when I got here, I knew a lot of people, but it's a lot different on the inside than it is, you know, from the outside. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, for me coming here in 05, you know, a lot of it was just learning the people and the processes. And, and, you know, when, if you take the tragedy aside in 2004 is a very successful year for Hendrick, you know, I think they had won 13 races. Jeff and Jimmy were racing for the championship in the last race of that year, although they didn't win. So they were they had had they were coming off a very successful year, but obviously, you know, things had changed from Martinsville on. And so, you know, I think, you know, if I look in hindsight, people were just running on adrenaline, and '05 was really a tough year to adjust. Um, and I think we started getting our legs under us again in '06, and, and you know, obviously went on a run with Jimmy. But I think for me personally, I had to go through a learning of what it's like to manage or be part one of the managers in a race team on the front line. Mm-hmm. And so when you're managing racing programs and a manufacturer, you're a step removed maybe. And so right. that was my learning curve. I felt like for my first year and, um, and probably still learning, I guess at this time. I, I found a quote from uh, an interview in, in 2009 uh, that, I, I think I did with you that that you said that the thing that that made you want to try to do the general manager job at Hendrick was when you were at GM Racing you you liked working on the Corvette program mm-hmm. most of all because that was the most hands-on yes. experience. Whereas I know when you were managing the NASCAR program, I think you felt a little bit more removed from it because you were trying to bring technology to teams mm-hmm. and 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 do things in a more holistic perspective as opposed to the Corvette team, you got to make some of the, the real hands-on decisions. Is, is, was that the appeal, I, I guess, of this Absolutely. job? Absolutely. Yeah. That's right. So those, that program with, that we had with partner Pratt and Miller, I, I, the, the, one of the biggest years I had in learning racing was 2003 when I took over the director's job, and we had a very difficult time in the Indy 500. And then we went to Le Mans with the Corvette, and we're racing um, at the time Ferraris with ProDrive, which David Richard was the owner of ProDrive, um, 
and still is. But very successful team and, and very talented group out of England with, with very good drivers. And, you know, we just got our butt kicked in 03. And, and I remember, you know, Doug Louth, who's a good friend and, you know, one of the people I really admire who's at Pratt Miller now, he and I had a really long conversation after we got off the plane from Paris about this is not going to happen again. <laughs> Can't happen again because if it does, we may not have a Corvette program, you know. And so we had some difficult decisions. I think mean, I think that's the thing where you learn, you know, the, that program, and these these are lessons that continue to be learned today, in any business and in, and in our industry is that the Corvette had won. I think in 01 and 02, we, they had won their class, and so in 03, and the writing was on the wall in 02. Like the the Ferrari was very fast, and they had a mechanical issue, I think, and then the Corvette won. And then we got our butt kicked, and then we was like, well, we got to rework everything right we were tires drivers engine arrow and we went back and the next year the, the car went undefeated and so i think it was it was the lesson of no stone goes unturned and you gotta push and not be afraid to make changes because standing still in this industry will put you behind immediately and you found that you had a love of that hands-on managing style at, at that well, point? i think i think it was you, you were controlling your destiny more yeah and you, and you felt like you were making a change or making a difference mm -hmm. and so that was you know gave you job satisfaction mm -hmm. I mean as you go up in any I find that as I've gone in my career you know some of my most satisfying jobs was when I was a calibration engineer at GM where I could go out in my development trucks and come back in and go that thing drives better <laughs> and I can then I can go put it and test it. Yeah, it makes better fuel economy. And I can go, right. you know, cold start it. And like I had, you know, and drive them off the line. And you have you have a great deal of satisfaction as you move up and you lose that hands on. You have to gain f that feeling from different things. And really, at, at this point, you have, you know, for me, my job satisfaction comes from seeing people succeed that work under you, mm -hmm. that you see that grow. Mm -hmm. and, and you put them in roles, and you see them grow in those roles, and you see them move on. Yeah. I mean, that's where you have to find. I mean, besides the, you understand winning's good, right? Right. But, right. but you have to look at people's careers and how they progress, and you have to take the satisfaction in that. Yeah, that's interesting. And so, from a from a GM perspective, when you were there and managing the NASCAR program, it was more about you're kind of handing stuff off and hoping that it, that it works out like that that's that that's the step of removal versus being in the trenches with the team and like assigning hey you're doing this you're doing this you're doing this with the the, the more managing role from gm perspective it was here's this and good luck with it pretty much I think, I think when you just if you just take the nascar challenges going to the racetrack 39 times a year there's a huge infrastructure to make that happen and right. as a manufacturer in the sport at least when I was starting in it, you you were bringing to bear hopefully technology that maybe teams couldn't afford, yeah. right? So you try to bring new ideas and technology and say, hey, look at this. We've invested in this. Come look at that. At the time, like, say, 7Post was a technology that was emerging mm -hmm. that teams could, weren't going to put the infrastructure in, and then you went and used it, and they felt like, okay, this is something we need to do, and then people started putting 7Post in. Though this is an example of the things that you would try to do as a manufacturer, besides the fact that teams have to use certain engine parts and now body parts from the manufacturer. Yeah. Obviously, that's in the rules, so you had to make sure those components were accurate but or, or correct for, for people to, to have success with them. The amount of preparation and work and execution at the track on a race weekend relies on the race team. Right, and you try to bring as a manufacturer bring tools for them to be successful. But you're going, you basically ask the team to go do this for you, right. and be successful for the on behalf of the manufacturer. Wait, just because I'm curious, before I, I let it go, uh, what, what were you calibrating as a as a GM engineer? <laughs> yeah. uh, at that time, I was working on 4.3 liter V6s. So it was um, I was working on S10 pickups and the little Blazers. I don't think they were called Trailblazers yet, and um, S10 Blazers, and then Astro Vans. Huh. Yeah, it was a combo platter. Yeah, it was a good time. I learned a lot, learned a ton, enjoyed every bit of it. Yeah. Because you did all the, you followed all the bad weather, so you did cold start testing in Canada, and you did all the hot work in Phoenix in July, and altitude work in between. Yeah. So, so wherever was, things yeah. were miserable, that's where things were miserable. That was my vocational <laughs> error. 
I should have been. Seems like a good preparation. I should have been. Well, that's what we always gave. You know, the guys that did the vehicle work, they were in Phoenix in the winter. Were like, man, <laughs> I missed that. Yeah. Should have never picked engines. So as you said, you, you get to Hendrick, Doug, at a, at a really like tough time, but at the same time, a, a, not necessarily on the track, a, a bad time. I mean, like you said, I mean, Gordon Johnson finished uh, second and third in the points, I think, in 2004, nearly won the championship. Mm-hmm. It was it was emotional. They won a lot of races. And I think I remember talking to you a, a, couple, of your, a couple of years into this role where you, were, you said when you arrived, it was sort of like the the Hippocratic oath that doctors take, you know, first do no harm. Right, exactly. And I know that like you, you're looking at it and you're thinking like, Hey, they've got a good thing going here. But at the same time, they're, they're changing structurally. I'm sure there's, there's things you wanted to, to instill or not necessarily change, but to, you want to put your, not your stamp on it necessarily, but you, you want to like have things run correctly. And when I had um, Tim Sindrick on the, on the podcast from Penske, he talked about how, that the team merged NASCAR and IndyCar under one roof and how difficult it was to kind of get buy-in on the philosophies that they were attempting to, to put into the NASCAR shop that had worked on the IndyCar side. I, I know that's not completely comparable to this, but did, did that take time here to, to maybe uh, not change the culture necessarily, but, but to kind of get things the way you wanted it, where everybody was pulling the rope in the direction under this new kind of structure of two, two car buildings and, and a different way of doing things. I think that the challenge that we have is there's there's kind of conflicting philosophy is that you know Rick feels very strongly that the crew chiefs are empowered to to control their destiny so that allows them some autonomy to to push and pull things in directions at the same time he he has a strong philosophy that whatever we're going to do, we're going to do together. Mm-hmm. So it, it drives the challenge in my world. I mean, that is my challenge in my world is that those four gentlemen are looked to, to bring performance. But at the same time as they're doing that, you know, what I try to tell them all the time is you got to make sure you communicate with each other why and what you're doing. And so that's the, that's kind of, you know, it's a little bit different than what you described, but that's that's the that's the crux of the dynamic that I deal with and mm-hmm. how the company tries to run. And you no, know, it's not the easiest way. Mm-hmm. It can be argued whether it's the correct way. It's the way we've chosen. It's brought success, but I think as any you know, everything evolves, right? This, but but every, how we've done business continues to evolve. If if you take from 05 to 16, we've evolved how we, the systems in place that we have for communication, the systems in place that we have for coordination, the, the, all that evolves. And I think that typically, you know, sometimes there are big moments where you just snap a line and say, this is how we're doing it from here on. Mm-hmm. And then there's other time typically, and in this, in this sport, it's just turns at the wheel and continuous improvement. And that's, we just focus on trying to do that as quickly as we can, the best we can. How much of improving in NASCAR is related less to making the machinery do what you want and more about just getting the people to do what you want by believing in the processes? I think it takes both. Yeah. It, it, it has to be both. I mean, you, you, you have to work the product. I mean, really, you know, a NASCAR team, I always say this, it is – we are a technology company in the entertainment business and you have to manage it that way. And it takes, but at the same time you're doing that under the crucible of competition with the magnifying glass on you every weekend. And I think that drives a lot of the processes and behaviors. And, and I think it's also, you know, when I go to give talks at suppliers or, or when I gave, you know, talk to General Motors, to production folks, it brings interest because the pace at which we do things, the amount of focus at which we do things, the intensity which it happens, I think, is not completely common in, in yeah. quote-unquote normal companies. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. Well, you, you know, you mentioned there, Doug, like you, you guys give your crew chiefs 
um, historically a, a fairly large degree of autonomy uh, with their cars, with their teams, and uh, thus they, they might have different directions in which they they head on something. Um, but yet at the same time, you're, you're also trying to have this collaborative standardized standardized approach and you said you know you, you guys wonder if that's the right way i think i think clearly it's the right way. it seems like it seems like that's where every team is going is realizing that that's kind of the, the way you need to do things but it is it is an interesting dichotomy of allowing these strong-willed crew chiefs uh, you know chad canals keith rodden alan gustafson greg ives i mean you hire these guys because they're smart and because they they know they want to do things a certain way but yet you, you got to get them all on the, the the same page um I look at that crew chief lineup and I see a lot of smart guys, but I also see a lot of potential for divergent ways of thinking. How hard, how hard is it just to to manage those personalities and ensure that all that information gets dispersed well across the board? Very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> and But I think that, that the thing that's happening that I feel like is happening currently is that you know, Kenny Francis is a year and a half in to being able to help with that. And then adding Darian Grubb in with that has helped a lot. So, you know, Kenny last year, we said, hey, help us out with, you know, become technical director and help us help tie some of that together. And the one thing that, that is unequivocal is that people have a huge degree of respect for Kenny's knowledge. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's probably one of the brightest minds in the garage, in my opinion. And so really fortunate to have him helping with that. And last year, we said, hey, help us with that. Oh, by the way, can you be crew chief for Chase Elliott for five races? And really, when you say that, that takes probably a good 10 or 12 weeks to do that, right? Because you have to prep before those races. I mean, it's not like you just showed up on Monday and think, this is what we're going to do for Brickyard. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So... You know, Ken, we had Kenny kind of doing two jobs last year, and I feel like he's really getting his legs under him this year, and that's gone a lot better. And Darian's been a big help in the coordination side of executing in part and parts and making sure we all parts through the system and understanding direction and bringing um, knowledge back from the track. So I feel like we're getting better at that, and mm-hmm. um, and it takes strong people like Kenny and Darian who have sat in the crew chief's chair understand why they are asking what they're asking and why they ask for it in the time period that they ask for it. Both former crew chiefs. Both former crew chiefs, right? One, you know, Darian won championship. Kenny did it a long time with Casey with a lot of success. So, you know, that helps me and helps the system Hmm. uh, get get parts and pieces through the system, ideas. You you kind of alluded to this analogy, but – I think in another interview you talked about handling drivers and crew chiefs and teams, and I know you have some general manager friends. And I think that uh, one of your general manager, baseball general manager friends, said that this was like having, imagine having four managers, and one is Billy Martin, one is Tommy right. Lasorda, right. I don't know, one is I don't know, throw out any other yeah. name, Art Howe, I don't know, right. Whitey Herzog. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> is that? I mean, is that really? kind of what it's 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 like in in some regard is absolutely yeah 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 i mean you have four i mean you have four and i think that's what's unique it's not just for me right it's whether it's jimmy maycar or zippy or you know any one of multi-car teams whether it's between two and four that's what's different between us and a stick and ball sport is we have we're trying to manage four teams that are trying to beat each other on sunday (laughs) and and so you know, you're trying to get them to work together for the greater good, but then, you know, cut them loose and, you know, just go win that thing and don't wreck each other, you know. Right. And so <laughs> it's it's a completely different dynamic right. and, and one that's hard for when, when I when I speak to other general managers, they don't understand. They understand, you I mean, you have four teams that compete against each other, and let alone, and then you're building engines and, and, and leasing those to competitors and, and you're helping, you know. Right. It just does not compute. Right. And so it's kind of a unique it's kind of a unique conundrum that we put ourselves in in that whole situation. But it's even though it's hard, as you said, it's, it might be harder to do it this way, harder to manage this way. It's worth doing because the results are are better. You think because of it? Over time, I feel like we've minimized our our valleys. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've obviously had some success. You know, what's what's odd is when you when you sit and do something like this with you you look back on it and say oh yeah that was pretty good but when you're in the middle of it 
it doesn't resonate because you're just in the middle of a fight and you know we're only as good as what happened at Michigan you mm-hmm. know which we came close with one and wrecked another and you know it's just it's hard not to have and, and that's just the nature of our sport you know whatever happened last weekend that's that's where you're at you don't think right. about it. Jimmy's one six and there's 240 right wins and you don't think about that yeah it's a little more immediate certainly um Another interview from from early in the 2009 season, uh, where I was talking to you and, and Mark Martin had had a couple of engine failures in the first three races, and uh, I had asked you then if, if that could be written off as a fluke, and you said no, that like you you could deal with guys getting caught in the pits when a yellow comes out, uh, that kind of situation stinks because it's just misfortune, but with an engine failure, you, you feel like you let people down sometimes, and that hurts. What, what what's that like in your role where I mean, not like all the quality control for nearly 600 people falls on your shoulders, but um, in a sport where you have so many thousands of parts and pieces that can break, and you, a lot of times you don't have control over that, although I, I think some would argue you can control a lot of those variables. But, I mean, some days that responsibility must feel kind of unbearable, I would think. Well, I think for most of us, inherently, you, I mean, if, if you're a good employee, you don't like to let your peers or bosses down. I mean, that you just have an intrinsic belief that you want to do as the very best you can for someone. And, and, you know, for me personally, I don't like letting people down. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, on the engine side, when something goes wrong, it's sadly pretty f- final. You know, you, you, if you speed on pit road, you can try to come back from it. It might, it might ruin your day. You may not be able to, but it's not done. And so, you know, the engine side's tough in that that when you do have an incident, whether it's one of our cars or a customer car, you got to look that crew chief and driver in the eye, and you just basically ruin their day. And you know, they understand it wasn't intentional. Mm-hmm. You know, we're fortunate that you know, since my time here, we've rarely had anyone you know really go off on us or say you know disparaging things or you know, what I mean, it's it's right. been you know, we've tried to, you know, I think we've, we have enough goodwill and, and, and have done enough good with our customers that they understand stuff happens, but it's still not easy. Like when you're there and you're looking at people getting, you know, a driver getting out of the car or a crew chief or the guys that had just worked all weekend and it's 95 degrees and, and now here, this is what we got. It's tough. Yeah. No doubt. And there's just no way around that. Yeah. Well, obviously that, that requires good leadership, good management. And I, I know you're somebody who studies, um, philosophies, maxims, approaches, and I've been told you are a, uh, a John Wooden fan. Mm. Uh, my favorite John Wooden expression, because I've been involved in a lifetime of deadline work is be quick, but don't hurry. Um, <laughs> what would be your, uh, your favorite wooden expression or, or do you, or could you pick what just one, or this is just a philosophy that he has? You know, it's hard with him. I think, I think you know, a lot of it, I think the thing when you start studying it, he's, it was a fascinating man to have the success he did and how he approached all that. And, you know, he has things about not necessarily having um, hard rules, mm-hmm. right? Because I remember he lost a player once with hard rules. I think one of the things, though, that sticks with me with him is that he expected you, and it, it, it kind of falls in where Rick's at. You know, Rick has this thing, you know, show up, show up on time, and show up with your game face on. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you know, ready to do, you know, you're showing up, we're getting ready to do it. And, and you, you're ready, you know, you show up, and it's it's go time. And Wooden talked about when he had his practices, you got to practice the way you want to play. you got to be prepared. So he prepared, he had a two-hour practice, and he felt he owed it to his team that you know, there's from his standpoint, student athletes. So you're gonna, I'm going, I'm not going to run practice over because it's important that you have your time to do what you have to do. This is my time, and in this two hours, he planned out that whole practice. Mm-hmm. This is, then we're going to do this for this long, and then we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And it was going to be two hours, right? But he expected you for those two hours to be on point and pay attention and try hard and do it. Because if you can't have time to practice right, how are you going to time to do it right? in the game was his point. And so I think that those are things that, you know, I think about with our team in that, 
you know, the slog of going on the road and the guys are on in the, in the, in the track or whether you, or you're an engine assembler. But if you go say you're at the racetrack, like, hey, you can have fun. We can go to Dunkin' Donuts on the way. We can cut up. But right, garage opens this time, right? Mm-hmm. And we're on and we got to go and we're going to do. And I think that, you know, there's things, but it, there's so many things with him. I hate to just point that one thing out, but I just yeah. use that as an example that I, I, just, I do. I forward a lot of things on. I've heard uh, that. There's a Wooden Wednesdays. A wooden Wednesday. Well, I, I mean, the backstory to that is I went and, and um, through some acquaintances met with some folks from the Pirates. And, um, and I had a real pleasure spending an evening with Neil Huntington, and, um, who's the general manager of the Pirates. I have a lot of respect for what he's done with that club. I'm not a Pirates fan, but I, but uh, they're in the National League, so the National League Central, yeah. <laughs> and I met Clint Hurdle, who was the manager of the Pirates, mm-hmm. and uh, was manager of the year, I think, thirteen, maybe fourteen. Anyway, but he was manager of the year, super guy. And we started talking, and and he had followed. He he knew enough about racing, and he's the one. He pointed out to me, he's like, I know your world, and your world, you got four of me, and that ain't easy, right? So he he kind of yeah. he understood it right away. Yeah. But Clint has an email every day that he sends out to a whole list of people that are interesting list of people of coaches across the country. Huh. And I was fortunate enough to be put on that list. And every Wednesday is a wooden Wednesday that he sends to me. And so when I find it's appropriate, um, I, I forward it on to the gang, to the managers, just, just yeah, yeah, to the managers. Okay. It's usually probably about 40 of the top managers get it. Just, yeah. I, I, you just try to put the thoughts out there. I mean, it's not, you know, you don't try to go be more ahead with it. Just, just yeah. hey, and, and I usually I get an email or two back saying, hey, that's appropriate. I mean, just, it's just, it's one of those things. Just stop, take a pause, and let's think about what we're doing, you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, you're not a Pirates fan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well aware of that. Yes. Uh, Doug is a St. Louis Cardinals fan who grew up near. Peoria, Illinois. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. Okay. Yep. And uh, so that's downstate, obviously, Illinois, where you find a lot of Cardinals fans near St. Louis. Um, how many times have you been to their fantasy camp? Three times. Okay. Three times, yeah. The last three years, which – so the, the fantasy camp is um, where you go and attempt to play baseball with, uh, <laughs> with former Cardinals. And so it's four or five days of, you know, you show up and they've got the uniform and you have your own locker and – you lock her next to a former Cardinal. You're on the team with former Cardinals. You eat meals with them. They harass you uh, <laughs> just like you'd be on the team. Um, and so it's 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 a huge pleasure. I mean, it's just it's something I look forward to every year. It's in January, and it's held at um, their spring training facility in Jupiter, Florida. And uh, I have a ball. I met a ton of new friends and uh, campers, for fellow people like me, and um, former Cardinals, so it's been it's been a real pleasure. You have to be at least 27 years old. They don't want any guys like in college hitting bombs. And, <laughs> that but, makes you feel better, right? right oh yeah, you're exactly. not absolutely like, going up against anybody. But you, yeah. there's guys 70 some years old out there, and they play every game, and so it's it's just a lot of fun. What position do they put you at, or do you get to pick? Or well, you kind of it evolves and depends what what Cardinals you you mean who's on your team, yeah. you know. And so um, I've pitched a little bit. I played. I played almost all first base this past camp, and then I have decent wheels compared to some of the campers, so I end up being outfield. And okay. I'm left-handed, so it kind of limits you. Decent wheels, which is why you were near Willie McGee. <laughs> all right, I had, was, was that this yeah, past Willie. Okay. Well, <laughs> I think Willie still has a step on me. <laughs> Just uh, barely. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, oh yeah. So I mean, as you point, like Willie McGee and Ozzie Smith and Lou Brock, who is just a complete gentleman. Uh, just one of my favorite Cardinals growing up and a lot of fun to be able to meet and talk with him. I, I sat down one time at lunch. I sat down on my plate of food. He was sitting there, and I asked him about why there's not as much base stealing in the game as when he was playing. And he started with Babe Ruth and how baseball was then and how the home run wasn't even like part of the game. And Babe Ruth changed that and right. how that started to change the game. And he – like. The rest of the lunch, we just sat and listened to Lou Brock talk about wow. baseball and st- and stealing bases and reading pitchers and timing pitchers when he was, you know, this is in the 60s and 70s, he's timing. I mean, it was wow. fascinating to have him sit and tell so those stories. So he has a command of the history all the way back to the dead ball era. Right, I mean, just, yeah. And I think it's the thing is, you know, and I think, you know, to, to re- relate to our sport is I pinch myself and I say to the guys a lot, you know, we'll have a debrief on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. And you listen to the guys talk about the cars and what's happening. And, you know, at some point – when you all you stop and you think, look back, you're gonna think, 
you know, I was listening to Jimmy Johnson and Jeff Gordon and Dale Jr. and Mark Martin and Kyle Busch, even in his early years, talk about race cars, like in the middle of it. Yeah. At the time, you're just thinking, why are they complaining? Right. <laughs> you know, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but when you look back on it, like they're some of the best to ever strap in. You know, and you think about that, you got to be in the middle of that dialogue with them and listen to them. Right. And, um, it's I, that's how I feel like when I go to the fantasy camp and he'll hear them tell old stories. Thirty years from now, when those guys are getting inducted in the NASCAR Hall of Fame, you'll right. be like, "Oh yeah, I right. remember, I remember. Like, <laughs> yeah, I remember you're complaining to Bristol. Right? <laughs> Stop it. Nice. Um, so that's that's one way that your your personal life uh, certainly can inform your professional life and help it. I know that you also um, do some other stuff that I think helps out on the the professional side that you I pursue personally. I, I've been told you do some continuing education courses at MIT. Is that right? On leadership and, and the like. So yeah, one of those things you get, you get the stuff in the mail and you get, well, I can't remember if it's email or in the, in the snail mail, but it's for MIT Sloan school of management. And, um, there was a class on managing complex projects. I think it was. And so, man, that seems like my world. And so I, it was a two day class and I, I went up to Cambridge and you, you go on, campus there and in, or near campus depending on the class and you go spend two days and and um just over time I find it fascinating I mean it helps me I think it helps you get out of our bubble mm-hmm. of our world here and whether it's in Charlotte or at the racetrack you get out of that and you meet people from all over the world that they could be engineers they could be non-engineers you just meet all sorts of different executives and so, I mean, those classes, you're learning things in the classroom, but you're also really learning from your classmates, too. And I mean, it's the interaction and the things that they deal with. And, and, and um, so I find that it's it's good to get unique perspective on different things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it's, I, I always come away, fe- you know, feeling like I've learned something and, and I've met interesting people. So, yeah, I've done that over the past five years, and it's um, it's been very rewarding. Hopefully it's helped here to be to yeah. be determined, but um, I'm sure it has. But I, I think there's been times I've come back and I've sat down with the guys and said, "Hey, I just learned this. Let me just talk about this." And I think one of the things, for instance, was had a whole afternoon session on the difference between people my age, early fifties, and millennials. Oh yeah, and and how how do you how you know why, why is it that there's you know how are people wired? How, what do they think? How do they think? How do you have to manage them differently? You know, so we sat down and just talked about some of that. Those cha- and when as I got done, the guys were like, "This kind of makes more sense now." Yeah, right. And not not in a bad way, right? Just more okay. I can maybe figure out how to relate some more. My wife would say, "I would need to have that talk with you because I'm <laughs> flummoxed by millennials all the time." We'll, we'll, we'll do that off <laughs> off of here. I can help. Wait, was maybe. there like a, a whiz kid you ran into at MIT that kind of like like showed you that, or was there was there somebody? That it was were, part of uh, part of the curriculum. And it was done by, and I don't want to say the company, but they had done an extensive study uh-huh. because they kept losing um, young people. They just wouldn't stay. And so they did a huge study on it. And why, why, are, why are we not relating to these folks? Why are they not happy with working in our company? Yeah. When I say our company, not Hendrick, I'm saying the, the company that people did sure. the study for. And so they, they came in and shared that. And, um, and so you had people, for, with interesting, the, this is the fascinating part of a class like that. So someone from Brazil stands up that's managing software engineers saying, let me tell you a story about what I had to deal with. And then someone in Boston stand, from Boston stands up and says, this is what I deal with. You know? And so from, it doesn't matter where you are in the world and who you're, man, you know, this, this stuff was resonating. And then the people had their own stories of the, that, that, well, I guess it's not just us. Right, right. You know? Interesting. And, it, and I guess it, it brings it home a little bit, yeah. Speaking of millennials, um, you have three kids? Correct. And the youngest of the three is interning at Hendrick? My middle. No, the middle one. Yes, okay. Okay. Yes. And that is your, your daughter. daughter? Yes. It, she's working in the marketing department? Isn't she it? is. Okay. Yes. She's she's spending the summer here, and um, she is the brains of the outfit. For sure. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, she's, she's very proud of her. She's just finished her junior year at Chapel Hill, starting her senior year. And uh, yeah, she's she's doing great. My oldest just graduated is graduated from App State, and my youngest is sixteen. Nice, still and hitting baseballs and running around and eating everything in sight. Okay, still hope for a Ducart in the major <laughs> leagues. No, I don't. I, well, <laughs> I think the thing 
I'll just say for parents, you just want if kids can find a passion and have fun doing it, that's all I want. Just have fun doing it. And I think you can, you know, I think participating in sports, you learn, you can learn life lessons sometimes doing that. Sometimes are hard ones. Yeah. Um, But it's been good. We've enjoyed it. And uh, in fact, I'm not going to go to Sonoma this weekend. I'm going to go see his travel team play uh, this weekend. Oh, good, good. I'm going to leave it to Mr. Hendrick and Ken Howes to handle Sonoma. <laughs> I've got confidence in them. Hopefully they can stay on top of it. Yes. Uh, wh- what's it like uh, being around family at work? Because we hear so much in th- this line of work. You probably don't travel quite as much as some of the road crews, obviously, and the, and, and right. the like. But but we hear all the time, like, this, that this job is so – it takes you away from your family so much sometimes to have your daughter here – is that kind of nice on daily basis? What's interesting is um, she, we drive in together and I drive her home, but I don't see, I rarely oh, see really? her in between, okay. right? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm not usually, we're up in the marketing offices, so I'm not yeah, yeah. here as often um, as, say, in the shops. Uh, so so I don't really I don't really see her, which is fine. Yeah. She doesn't need that around. Okay. Uh, bugging her. But it's nice, it's nice to have that, that soak time with her to and from work. And I think, you know, the folks that, like you said, I don't have the schedule of the guys at the track. I do travel a lot with him because, like, I wasn't in Michigan last week and I was at a sponsor event, um, a conference that they're having. But I think you just – when you plan family time together, then you plan it together and and you enjoy it as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and we end up, you know, planning things and focus, you know. And when we go, we know it's always a good time. We always know we're going to – focus on each other try to stay out of the phones but that's hard uh yeah but but that's that's what you have to do and i think i've been in the racing doing some sort of racing job since 96 so i mean they've just grown up with dad is at the racetrack a lot and kind of gotten used to it so almost two decades around nascar um we, we we talked about the changes that you've seen here how about um in NASCAR, I mean, you've seen it from many perspectives, Doug. I mean, you, you have the, the team perspective in working with NASCAR, but also the, the GM manufacturer side of it as well. Um, obviously, there's been a sea change with the charter system and the way things that the business is being conducted now with so many more committees and meetings. But I think it even started maybe a, a few years before that. What, what do you see? About the the buzzword of reasons collaborative uh, in terms of com- I don't know if that's a hundred percent effective in describing it, but um, the, the way that the competition rules, directions of the cars and everything is it does it, does it feel like everything's in a more positive direction now with with the way NASCAR is, is doing things? In my opinion, no doubt it's in, in a more positive direction, and um, I think it's I think we're building good relationships between NASCAR and the, and the teams in my role. I've, my, my joke is I become, I became elected to the HOA. <laughs> and so I don't, I don't remember raising my hand, but I, uh, was Rob elected. Kaufman put you on there. Yeah, well, I don't, kidding. well, just yeah, kidding. Well, I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, well, I guess that's, I, it can be a good thing. Um, but in that, in that I've had a lot of, you know, time with Scott Miller and Gene Stefanition, and I feel like, you know, Scott and I had a really good rapport as peers through the years, and and I think that when I look at my other competition peer, you know, whether it's uh, peers, you know, Travis Geisler, Jamie Makar, Greg Zabadelli, Robbie Reiser, mm-hmm. Eric Warren, Max Jones, I, if I forgot someone, Sammy John, et cetera, Tommy Baldwin, we, we feel, I think we... I feel really good that the competition group, while sometimes we have fits and starts, we can a lot of times put personal agendas aside or try to for the better of the sport. Mm-hmm. And I think we've done a really a pretty good job of doing that. And and I, you know, we really, you know, whether it's a safety item or things on track that we're trying to help with, trying to help the product on track, I feel like the tone and the dialogue is much better. I think the trust levels way up, um, and and I think those are only positives for mm-hmm. the future. Now it does take a lot of work. I mean, it's a lot of coordination, and, and and you know, if you said what's the difference between fifteen and sixteen, a lot of my time this year is taken managing that and helping with that. 
it's easy to say, hey, just communicate better, but that's yeah. a huge time. It takes, it right? does. That's yeah. right. And, yeah. and I mean, I'm not, I don't, I'm not perfect at it at all, but it's, you know, between Travis and Jimmy and I, we're kind of the three to, to help with that this year. And mm -hmm. so we've tried to do that. We've tried to do it with the driver some and with NASCAR and, um, and it's important, right? Because sometimes you just don't, <laughs> sometimes we're over there as teams talking to NASCAR about something and the drivers are going, what are they doing? Mm -hmm. Like, well, do you know your teams are asking for this? I'll go, oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for letting us know. So uh, those are just things you just, it's always, you can't over-communicate. Yeah. It's, it's just very difficult to do. And there's just a lot of moving parts. So, you know, it takes a lot of effort. Yeah. Herding cats, I'm sure, a lot of the no time doubt. with that many agendas and perspectives yes. on the way things are being done. Um, Hendrick, also in a unique position this year, Doug, obviously with uh, this being the last year with Stuart Haas racing. When when that was announced, um, you know, you, you said the team would be supported appropriately, but I think in a serious interview you also said it, it wouldn't necessarily be business as usual. How is that, I guess, coming up on halfway through that final season? How's, how's that been so far? I mean, from my standpoint, it's been smooth. Hopefully they would say the same thing. I mean, mm -hmm. I think we quickly understood kind of where the lines were now as we move forward. And it's been just pretty straightforward from, from where we sit. Um, so it hasn't been really that much dialogue probably from, from Daytona on. It's been all, you know, we, we kind of understood how we were going to work. I mean, we worked together so closely for so many years. I feel like Greg and I have a good rapport and you know, I think we pretty quickly understood this. That we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. And call me if you need me. Mm -hmm. And I mean, not that we ignore them, right? But it's not, you know, right. We're not in bed together anymore, pushing forward. So that it's been kind of pretty uneventful, actually. Is that somewhat of a relief? Because as you said, I mean, you guys have that. You and Greg Zipidelli have a long-standing relationship on on how things work between your organizations. But of course, the the media. Uh, is going to blow it um, uh, perhaps out of proportion a little bit about how's this going to work, how, how they can be affected. And obviously at Atlanta, uh, I'm complicit in this. We all wrote, hey, look at who beat a Stuart Haas car. It was a Hendrick car. And <laughs> well, right after, <laughs> right in the wing in the answer. I mean, is it a relief that like all of that did kind of get put to bed despite all the attention? Oh, the, yeah, I feel like that was behind us fairly quickly. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think, I, I mean, I understand I understand the dialogue. I understand. I mean, I, it's just that's just the nature of the beasts. Yeah. So it was fine. Yeah. I think down in in the trenches, we just try. You know, we we very much. You no, know, we're still where we're at. Is if we don't win the championship, we'd like to have one of our motors win the championship, right? I mean, that doesn't change. Mm -hmm. you know? And I'm very proud of the fact that they won two championships so far with our engines. And I think it legitimizes, you know, and if anyone ever asks if we give the same stuff to people, and we get that all the time, I think Tony's championship and Kevin's championship shows that, you know, that it's a very professional group building those engines and developing those engines. And, and you know, I don't think anyone at Stuart Haas ever questioned whether they were going to get competitive engines this year. But, I, you know, I know that that people will – extrapolate that sure. from what's happened and it's just you know, we're, we're focused on helping them succeed this year right um been asking a, a lot of people doug on this podcast who have the background in on the team side the manufacturing side um about auto racing and this kind of goes back to what you're saying about about millennials and understanding that that youngest generation what's the most important factor do you think in maintaining auto racing's relevance as it relates to the youth and, and cars. And I guess what I, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, I, what does auto racing, I guess, need to do NASCAR in particular, I suppose, to, to maintain that place on the American sports landscape where if kids, if what we keep hearing are kids today aren't necessarily interested in driving cars yet, how do you keep them interested in racing without that interest in driving cars being there to the degree maybe it was when you and I were, were kids? I mean, that's an interesting question, and I don't think it's just a NASCAR question. Right. Um, I don't. It's hard for me, you know, having my head down in the racing industry as much as I've had and been around performance cars as long as I have. It's hard for me to extract myself from that and say, what's someone in L.A. think about all this? Right. I'm fortunate. I drive 
lots of different vehicles. Um, and so I came home with a, a Cadillac. I am driving a Cadillac CTSV right now, which is a beautiful car. Kind of the perks for, of working. Well, for I mean, I, well, I paid for it. Let me just okay. say, I paid for it, right? It was a, it's cash. But money. you have a, a nice selection. It's I'm a nice sure, selection, yeah. right? Mister Eight, he sells everything just about. But my point yes. is, that thing can't. You know, it rumbles a little bit. It's 640 horsepower, so it's got a little bit of thump. And so, when I drove in my driveway, like the boys in the neighborhood are over, like, "What's that, Mister Ducar? What do you have?" <laughs> you know. Yes. And you know, my one neighbor says. Like, we hear you start up to leave the driveway, and he gets up from the breakfast table and watches you drive away. And so it's hard for me to know how to answer that because I don't – sometimes I hear you like, kids don't care. And then, you know, my, my own personal world is if I drive a – when I had a, Camaro Z, a red Camaro Z01, every boy at the bus stop when I pulled out in the morning, it was an early bus, they stop. everyone stopped. The moms told me, like, everyone stopped what they're doing and watched me drive away. <laughs> Yeah, and so I feel like, you know, when I got hooked on auto racing, it was this orange AJ Foyt number fourteen Indy car. It's just like it came in my Sports Illustrated as the front, and I'd never seen anything like it. And aesthetically, it just you know it's very visceral. It's like you you see, feel, want to be part of it. And so I think the challenge is. That once you see or, you know, if you go to a race and see it and feel it and feel hear this, feel the engines come by you and see it and see the speed and understand it, I think it changes your perception. The, the challenge is to get to that point. Mm-hmm. And so because it's like anything, you know, I watch a tennis match and it's like fascinating to me, but I'm sure if I saw someone hit a 120 mile hour serve and return it, it'd give me a whole new perspective on it. I think it's just, I mean, I'm trying to use an example of, right. You know, I just had last weekend, I was at the Padres. I was out in San Diego with my family watching the Padres and nationals. And I'm watching this guy throw 96 and a guy trying to catch up with it. I mean, until you see 96, mm-hmm. until you hit against that, it's hard to understand it. And so I think people that get exposed to, I'll just say our sport, inevitably if you just see it from the stands it's like that's interesting if i if i had the fortune of taking an executive or someone through this facility they always come away with a new appreciation of what we do and what goes into it mm-hmm. it's hard the point is is how do you tell that story yeah. you may not be interested in like i don't care about a v8 pushrod engine or i don't care about engines but the simulation work that goes on behind that might be interesting or the wind tunnel work that goes on in our sport every week, all the time. There's two wind tunnels in this area that work all the time, right? Trying right. to make these, optimize these cars. Like, you know, software programming is huge, right? And it goes on all through the sport. Right. But we don't talk about it. Yes. It's just part of the technology that we, all of us are doing to try to optimize things. But maybe we can talk about a little bit. Maybe more. Maybe we can talk about a little bit more, <laughs> yeah. right? Because there are so many all angles of NASCAR. There's so many that, angles, yeah. right? That 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 I think are you know I know every kid's interested in computers and phones and 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 if I if any of the kids are listening to this podcast, learn how to program. Mm-hmm. You'll have a job for life. Hmm. Programming, okay. Oh yeah, it's like plastic. You can stay at home and do it in your underwear. You don't have to go anywhere. Programming, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so learn how to code. Is that what yeah. programming yeah, yeah. is? Okay. Yeah. Much. Okay. Or at least have a really good understanding of why it's important and how it works. Interesting. Okay. And that'll get you a job in NASCAR engineering or anywhere? Anywhere. Okay. It's not going to stop. The need – what business isn't – what business do you not hear them talking about analytics? Mm -hmm. How how they're going to take information that's coming in and make business decisions. Right. It's in every business. Right. Everybody's got tons Every of information available right. now, it's but it's like how to it. process it right. and figure out good exactly. data versus bad data and make exactly. it efficient. Yeah, uh, I've got one more for you, Doug, and uh, it concerns the man whose name is above the title in the company. Um, in I didn't want to end this without giving you a chance to talk about Rick Hendrick. In, in a 2014 interview I did with you uh, for a story on Rick Hendrick about you, uh, for USA Day Sports, you said that um, Rick had a really incredible way of telling if a group isn't working well that he doesn't go to every race necessarily, but he could show up on a Sunday after skipping a race or two 
be around a team for 15 minutes and know immediately we got to maybe make this change or that change or this isn't working. Mm-hmm. How does, what, what have you, I mean, is that just an innate ability that he has that some people have, or is that something that can be taught or, or I don't know, um, somehow optimized? How, how does he have that? Man, I wish I, I wish I knew. I mean, I try, you know, we all, I mean, I tried to do that. You know, I, you, sometimes it's just, you know, people well enough that you can, you're around them enough, you know, you know, but it's not just here. He does it right. He does it in his automotive group too. Mm-hmm. I think it's just his basic, you know, has a basic empathy for people and, and that they want, he wants them happy. I mean, he has a core belief that if you have happy employees, then that the rest will come. Mm-hmm. Right? So if, you, if people feel like they're being treated fairly and like working where they work, especially on the automotive side, then you're going to have good customer satisfaction because employees that are happy with where they're working are going to bring that, you know, understand and bring that satisfaction to the customers. You know, unhappy employee. I mean, how many of us have been someplace where there's an employee that's not, you know, that they don't want to be there mm-hmm. and you're trying to get something fixed, mm-hmm. a return or service, service at a restaurant, whatever it is. Right. And you know, they don't want to be there. Right. And they make it, Obviously, you, they don't want to be there. Right. Right. Well, you feel bad asking for another sweet tea. You know what I mean? <laughs> because, you know, right. that person. So my point is he works to make you want happy to be working for him. And I think that that drives through the system. And he senses and he looks for that. And he looks for that harmony. I mean, he's big on people getting along. And he senses it. And that's part of where I think he finds success. And I think... Also, the way he treats people makes them want to please him, and um, because you, you know he's done so much for you, you want to give something back to him. And I think that 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 circle is what part of what makes you know him so successful. Mm-hmm. So he's you know, and he does things that that people don't know that they don't he doesn't want them to know but he does you know special things when people need help and stuff like that so people know about that and they know that he cares so anyway i'm, I'm kind of rambling except for he going back to your question on how he knows <laughs> the dynamic of a group I, I think part of it's a gift and but I think it's because it starts with the fact that he cares whether they get along, right? If you don't care yeah. if someone's getting along, then you're not going to look for it, right? Right. If right. you're not, if you don't care if people are, I don't care if you guys are whipping on each other. If you win, right? If that's how he felt, then he wouldn't even look for it, right? Right. He, he wants that harmony. Yeah. I, obviously, so. we we hear from him and from so many other team owners that that people are the key to the whole thing. That's all about is Roger Penske has said human capital um, is. And the answer you just gave, I think, pretty much summed it up. I mean, that's it. It's not just like looking for people, but getting the, the right people who want to work for you and work with the people mm-hmm. you have, right? That's just, that's what it means. That's it. And I, and it's hard, you know, what's, what's, what's hard to kind of get across is that when you're in the middle of a marathon of a season, right, to keep that harmony, to keep that together to keep folks together through the ebbs and flows of a season um you know we've been on the good side of success we've been on the bad we've been you know in valleys we've been you know you can kind of tell when you're starting to pull out of it which is kind of exciting sometimes when you know you're you get some momentum going but you have to it's, it's there's challenge all the time with it right and it can be gone you know you know one wreck can hurt a lot of momentum right so you got to build that back up and someone upset you know all those sorts of things it's a, just a dynamic that doesn't stop and i think you know in our industry the difference is a lot of us are living together pretty much together three days a week you know you wake up and drive to the track at six in the morning you work all day you get back you shower let's go to dinner right as you right you're living together yeah yeah you can read. You can read that. You know, I can order for half the guys I go to dinner with. Like I know, you know, it's just you know, what they're going to be get, comforting right? and maddening all right. at the same exactly. time when you're on the road with them 36 weeks a year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, those are good words of wisdom to end with. That and computer programming, I think, will be the main <laughs> the main takeaways here. Uh, Doug, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate your time. 
Nate, it's been a pleasure. I think the thing, I, I pre- appreciate the time and I appreciate these podcasts. This, you know, you've, you've talked to some interesting people. I think that the challenge of what NASCAR teams do, I think, is something that's maybe not understood. Right. How the, no, how the backside that. of it works. Yep. I know you've talked with Tim Sindrick and, and some other folks. Um, it's, I appreciate you talking to me about it. I don't know if it helped anyone to understand it, but it is an interesting dynamic that is maybe unique in in the world of sports. And, um, and we don't always think about that, right. but I think sometimes it, it comes up in different ways, whether it's in your telecasts. I mean, we didn't talk about, can I just close one thing? Yeah, we didn't go talk ahead. about music. No, we didn't talk okay. about, no, no, this is important. <laughs> this is important. Isn't it? Okay. So, you know, I hate to say this on the podcast, but I'm, uh, this may be copyrighted. Stevie and I may have this copyrighted, but I don't know. <laughs> so we, Stevie and I are going to potentially have a radio show someday, which I'd hopefully isn't like step on your toes in this gig yeah. you got going on. No, not at all. I think we, we have not, separate audiences. No one's going to need a college prep vocabulary book for our I'll, Although, let me just insert, yeah. you and Steve are smarter than me. Let's just throw that's that out there right now. That's absolutely no. true. Like, having spent that's, enough time on you and Latart, no, like... No. I mean, Latard is brilliant, and you go to MIT. Don't I just, I just, don't, I just don't study my Merriam-Webster every day to come up with words. This has so, big anyway. enough, literally, let alone without saying that. But so Stevie and I, we have a plan for a radio show. Okay, it's gonna be a morning show, and he's gonna be like, of course, you know Stevie, so he's gonna be like the main guy talking, and I'll just kind of throw in. <laughs> he's got the right personality. Right, I'll for bring it. in the yeah. color, right? Right. But the radio show is gonna be called Sunny and Seventy. <laughs> And so again, just don't know. No one can copy this. Okay. So, but the point is, is you got to have a good. We're all going to have be in a good mood, right? It's, and so, Sunny and Seventy show. No one comes on in a bad mood, but we're not going to have weather. We're just going to give you the cities where it's sunny and seventy. <laughs> right. So it, I love it. Right. So yeah. we feel like we probably need to do it out of San Diego. I, that'd be a good because I think that'd be. Which made me think of this weekend. I texted him. I said, look, you won't believe where I'm in San Diego. This is where we need to do the radio show. Because it's always sunny in 70, right? It never rains in Southern California. It never, never rains. Yeah. I can't remember. The, the, Steve would be upset. I can't remember that one hit wonder. Oh. saying that? Uh, Tony, Tony, Tony. Absolutely. Saying that. Yeah. <laughs> I Who's going to do a podcast you. on you, Nate? <laughs> no and your And your music taste. No one. Um uh, no, I am. I am sad we didn't get to the music. We didn't, right? But Steve, the point is, Steve and I are going to do this radio show, and I think it'll be a hit. I just don't know how old we're going to be when we do it. Okay. All right. Uh, well, we'll look forward to that. And yeah, the Tim Cindric podcast was really well received, and but it was because he was candid, as were you. And I think there is an appetite for learning about this. And so I appreciate your candor and honesty. And thanks again for being here. You're welcome. Hey, I'd listen to that show. Steve Letarte and Doug Ducart talking about weather reports from randomly selected metropolitan areas. Sure, that sounds scintillating. No, seriously, the point Doug made toward the end of our episode that sometimes what happens on the backside of what NASCAR teams are doing isn't so understood by the public, perhaps because it isn't explored enough. I, as a member of the media, I would be complicit in that. I think Doug is correct on that front. There, there are compelling stories to tell in that vein, and I appreciate his candor about the job and his role to help tell those stories. We did a similar podcast to this with Team Penske President Tim Sindrick a couple of months ago, and it got terrific feedback. I, I think people pleasantly were surprised to learn so much about the dynamics that take place behind the curtain of a NASCAR team. And I suspect we'll get a similar response to this Doug Ducard episode. You always gain knowledge during the course of any discussion or interview, but I love those discussions and interviews in which I feel as if we're gaining an understanding of how or why things work the way they do. And I think in these episodes with Doug Ducart and Tim Sindrick, we get there. Uh, I also just realized that Doug and I never got back to the impersonations that I mentioned at the outset of the podcast. Doug does some hilarious mimicry of some NASCAR personalities. Uh, When we have him back on this podcast, I'll try to coax a few from him. They are a hoot. Uh, Because this is the NASCAR and NBC podcast, I'd be remiss in not reminding you that NBC Sports is back in the full swing of broadcasting NASCAR race weekends. That includes Xfinity and Sprint Cup practices, qualifying, and races. 
You can check the NBC Sports website for listings about where to find TV information, or you always can stream it via the NBC Sports app. Uh, download that to your tablet or smartphone or watch on your computer. You also can catch NASCAR America on weekdays, Monday through Thursday at 6 p.m. on NBCSN. Thanks to Tess Quinlan for producing the NASCAR NBC podcast. This episode and all of the rest are available on Audioboom, Stitcher, and a plethora of other smartphone apps. You also can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes for automatic downloads of new episodes. Also check out all of those places for the NBC Sports podcast lineup for more content, particularly the podcast with Joe Posnanski, Pro Basketball Talk and College Basketball Talk, and the Roto World podcast always are terrific if you're into fantasy sports. If you have ideas for guests, suggestions, questions, please send me feedback on Twitter. That's at Nate Ryan. Always interested in hearing what people liked and what else they'd like to hear in the program. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm Steve Letarte, STP auto expert and former crew chief. I know what it takes to keep engines performing at their best. STP's latest breakthrough additive, STP Ultra 5-in-1 plus Fuel System Cleaner plus Fuel Stabilizer delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline and helps keep fuel fresh during storage. For over 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products to help engines run better, longer. One bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.